Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, talking with you once again about practical issues related to ministry leadership. In just a moment, I'm going to do the second podcast on my new book, Shadow Christians, and talk some about why I wrote the book, what I hope it will accomplish, and then some of the content of the book to encourage you today. But before I do that, I want to follow up on a recent podcast that I did related to offerings and the nature of offerings and how the offering as a part of worship is changing because of the pandemic. I ask you to write me back and give me your suggestions and ideas, and several of you did that, and I'm grateful. Thanks for the input. To summarize what you said back to me, uh, I think that most of you are trying to do at least two things or two categories of actions to keep the offering a prominent part of worship, even though most people are giving electronically or uh, by other means. Uh, first of all, uh, you're using the offering as a time of education, instruction, or motivation. Uh, you're using uh, the offering to highlight ministries that the church is doing, to show how the church is involved globally through its giving, uh, or to otherwise talk about needs the church is meeting because of the generosity of its givers. Uh, this is being done by video, by uh, still photos, by testimonies, and even by just short uh, uh, devotional-type presentations from a pastor or other leader. So one way that people are keeping the offering prominent in worship is by using the time devoted to the offering more as a teaching, motivational, instructional, inspirational time than necessarily a time to gather the offering itself. A second way is by using symbol, symbols. Uh, by placing uh, the offering in a public part of the service, placing an offering box or an offering chest or something like that in a very visible part of the worship facility, uh, making it central uh, to the worship service itself by perhaps even bringing it forward and placing it uh, in its prominent location during the service. And so symbolism and using the, uh, using the symbols of offering are another way to keep it highlighted as a part of public worship. Well, those are the two categories of response I received, and I'm grateful for what you had to say back to me. So thank you for that. Uh, keep thinking about it, and let's keep looking for different ways to creatively uh, keep the offering a vital part of worship as it was throughout the Bible, while at the same time acknowledging that people are not going to give the ways they've given in the past, and more and more people will be coming to worship without a physical offering to give, but yet still being very much involved as donors and uh, to the ministry that's uh, being supported. So let's keep that in mind. Now let's move on to Shadow Christians. As I said last week, I have a new book coming out called Shadow Christians, subtitled Making an Impact When No One Knows Your Name. Now, this book emerged from a, a couple of streams that were flowing in my life simultaneously. First of all, I became fascinated a few years ago with the unnamed and anonymous characters who were consequential in the New Testament. Uh, I realized that there are about 170 named individuals in the New Testament, but there are also many other people who had very significant parts in the redemption narrative that is sort of the overarching theme of the New Testament that don't have their names included in the story. I became fascinated with these people and, so, and started categorizing them and studying them and analyzing what happened and why and what they did and when and just trying to, uh, for my personal development, make a study out of these characters. And that study uh, grew into the book. But that was one stream. But a second stream that was flowing at the same time 
was my growing appreciation for the role of followers in the leadership equation. You know, my favorite definition of leadership says that leadership is an influence relationship among leaders and followers. And the emphasis in that first part of the definition is that leadership is a relationship between leaders and followers. The second part of the definition says, who intend real change according to their mutual purposes. I saw the power of followers demonstrated so clearly during the relocation and renaming of Golden Gate to Gateway Seminary. As you may remember, about four years ago, the seminary completed the most dramatic relocation imaginable, selling our, cal cal our campuses in both uh, San Francisco and Brea, California, and building a new campus in Ontario, and then another new campus in Fremont, and relocating most of our personnel uh, to, this, to the Southern California location at Ontario. Uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of families uprooted and moved with us, faculty, staff, even students. You know, I got a lot of credit for that relocation, and uh, I'm the one who travels around the country and speaks about it, and I'm the one who wrote the book about it. And I'm the one that, uh, for better or worse, will be remembered as the president who moved and renamed the seminary. But I have a profound understanding of who really accomplished that move. It was the followers, not the leader. Once I made the announcement and started us down a path, it was our faculty that kept the academic program going during the transition. It was our staff who made the relocation possible and accomplished it in such powerful and dramatic ways. It was our students who unwaveringly stayed with us and continued in their academic programs and pressed through all the way to graduation. Yes, I was the leader. As I call, my, as I call people like me in the book, I'm a spotlight Christian. I work in the spotlight. I, I, I don't work in the shadows. People know my name. They watch what I do. I'm publicly accountable, all of that. But it was the shadow Christians at Gateway Seminary who made it happen. And if you think about it, in any church ministry context or any ministry organization context, it's the shadow Christians who are so significant to accomplish anything that really happens. I know leaders are important. I've devoted much of my life to shaping leaders. I write about it. I speak about it. I teach about it. But the other side of the equation is equally significant, and that is nothing really happens unless the followers are fully engaged and make it happen. So <clears throat> today on the podcast and then following up next week, I want to talk about some things I discovered in the Bible and also from my observations about how God uses shadow Christians. The first thing I'd like to point out is that shadow Christians experience God's power. Now, I think sometimes because so many of the stories in Scripture in which God's power is very evident are connected to named and prominent people like Elijah or David or Peter, that we miss the stories where God's power is demonstrated power uh, overwhelmingly to shadow Christians, people whose names are not included in the story. Now, there are many examples of this, but one of my favorite has, been the, has become the story of the leper. You can find that story in Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 39, but it's also mentioned in the other Gospels. Jesus encountered a leper, and the Bible says Jesus touched him, and in that touch transformed him entirely. 
The leper was suffering physically. He, of course, had a dreaded disease. He was also a, socially, a, a social outcast. <clears throat> he had to stay away from people and yell unclean, unclean everywhere he went. He was also, because he couldn't be around people, uh, uh, what I call a religious reject. He, he couldn't go to temple. He couldn't go to synagogue. He, in our vernacular, couldn't go to church. He, he couldn't be around anyone. So think about how lonely, isolated, and how much pain this man lived with on a daily basis. And yet in a moment, Jesus touched him. And in that moment, he experienced the power of God for physical healing, social reclamation, and spiritual cleansing. He experienced God's power in all these ways. You know, everyday Christians can experience God's power. God's power is not reserved for spotlight leaders. Everyday Christians can pray and see God break through in their lives and in the lives of others. Everyday Christians can share their faith and see God work through them to bring the gospel to bear in someone else's life in such a clear way that they come to faith in Jesus Christ. Everyday Christians can give their resources away and watch God replenish those and see his power demonstrated to take care of us, no matter how we give, him supplying our every need. Everyday Christians, unnamed Christians, anonymous Christians can all experience God's power. So good news for you today. You don't have to be well-known. You don't have to be famous. You don't have to have a lot of Twitter followers. You don't have to have your name up in lights. You don't have to have a blog. You don't have to do a podcast. You can be anonymous, unnamed, a behind-the-scenes shadow Christian, and you can still experience God's power. That's a good blessing to have for every one of us. A second thing I've learned from the Bible is that shadow Christians share the gospel. In fact, God's plan for getting the gospel to the whole world revolves around shadow Christians. Now, I know what you're thinking. No, wait a minute now. The most famous evangelist in human history was Billy Graham. He was a spotlight leader. He was very effective at leading people to faith in Jesus. So therefore, God must want to use people like that more than the rest of us to share the gospel with the whole world. Well, let's do a simple math problem to discover if that's true. Let's suppose that Billy Graham preached to 100,000 people in a giant stadium every night for 10 nights. That's 1 million people who heard him preach. Now, at most Graham crusades, about half the people who come are already Christians, and they're bringing their friends, they're working as counselors, they're otherwise supporting the event, and about half the people who come are not yet believers who've come to hear the, uh, the preaching and the singing and to experience the crusade. So about, uh, so Mr. Graham preaches to 100,000 people for 10 nights. That's a million people. And about half of those, about 500,000 people, are not Christians. We rejoice in that. We rejoice that one person could share the gospel and that uh, 500,000 people would hear it. But now, let's think about it. Those 500,000 Christians who each brought their friend to the crusade Let's suppose that in the previous year, rather than working to get their one friend to come to hear Billy Graham, they shared the gospel with one person a week for a full year. If 500,000 Christians shared the gospel with one person a week for a full year, 
26 million people would have heard the gospel. 26 million people. If 500,000 Christians shared the gospel with just one person a week, 26 million people would hear the gospel. Now, huge outreach events have many strengths, but they were never designed as God's foundational plan for communicating the gospel to the masses. His plan has always been shadow Christians, not ministry professionals. Shadow Christians who share the gospel regularly, consistently, and effectively. Now, when everyday believers do this, the gospel becomes what it was always designed to be, a viral movement. A viral movement that spreads contagiously through communities. Now that illustration is powerful today because we're all dealing with the pandemic and we all know how rapidly a virus can spread and we all know how it can, get it, how it can work its way into every nook and cranny of a community. Listen, that's the way the gospel is supposed to be spreading. The gospel is supposed to be spread through people who are in all facets of community and all strata of society, who are out there dealing with all kinds of people, sharing the gospel and penetrating all of the world with it. God is looking, as I say in the book, for maids and mechanics, truck drivers and teacher's aides, accountants and actors. God is looking for everyday people, shadow Christians, who don't work in the spotlight, who work behind the scenes, who are sharing the gospel effectively in their communities. Yes, we all rejoice and celebrate a man like Billy Graham, but we should rejoice and celebrate even more the tens, if not hundreds of thousands of believers who could turn the gospel into a viral movement if we'd only speak up and share it with someone else. Now, in the Bible, uh, this idea of sharing the gospel is typified or exemplified by both Jesus going to people and people being brought to Jesus. And I think both of these are, 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 sim are symbols of how we do gospel sharing today. We take Jesus to people and we bring people to Jesus. Now, in the Bible, as I said, there are lots of illustrations about this with anonymous people. Let me give you just two. First of all, there were some anonymous people who, who brought a friend to Jesus, and they symbolize for us what it means to bring people to Jesus. I'm speaking, of course, about the four anonymous friends who tore the roof off the building and brought their friend to Jesus by dropping him in during the middle of a teaching moment that Jesus was having with his followers. You know the story. The man was crippled, a paralytic, couldn't get up, couldn't move, lying on a mat. His four friends picked him up, carried him to where Jesus was teaching. The crowd was too packed for, him to get, for them to get through. So they worked their way up on the roof and pulled back some of the thatch and other things that made up for that roof in that part of the world. Got a hole big enough they could drop their friend through, probably tied some ropes on the corner of the, of the pallet, and lowered him down in the presence of Jesus. This is an example of bringing someone to Jesus. And then Jesus went to people. Or we might say we take Jesus to people. A great example of this is Jesus at the woman at, uh, dealing with the woman at the well. This woman is unnamed, and yet Jesus went to her. Uh, the Bible says he had to go through Samaria. He didn't really. Uh, you know that part of the story. Jesus went out of his way to go there. He had to go there not because it was geographically convenient, but because he had a woman to meet that he wanted to talk with about her relationship with God. 
So Jesus went and shared the gospel with her, and then she became a person who also took people to Jesus. After Jesus had come to her, she took the news back to her village, and it says that many there also believed. So we see in the scriptures that there are anonymous, unnamed people who were involved in bringing people to Jesus and in taking Jesus to people. Both of these models typify or exemplify or symbolize what it means for shadow Christians to be so effective with the gospel. You know, I have a friend, a shadow Christian named Ted. You've never heard of him, probably never met him. He works behind the scenes trying to win people in his profession to faith in Jesus Christ. And he is doing an amazingly effective job in that context. I've been watching him now for more than 10 years as he's consistently shared the gospel, seen men place their faith in Jesus and be baptized to become public followers of Jesus. He's been doing this without a lot of fanfare, without a lot of notoriety. He's never written a book about it, never been on anybody's podcast to explain how to do it. Just quietly, as a shadow Christian, making a difference in a place where no one else except perhaps this one believer could have had the opportunity to share the gospel. Your witness matters. You are the only Christian many people will ever meet. Most unbelievers are not going to anyone's church. Most of unbelievers are not going to a stadium crusade with a Billy Graham or a Billy Graham type preacher. Most unbelievers are not dialing into Christian television or Christian radio. Most unbelievers are living their lives without any reference to God or the gospel. But they know you. You work with them. You go to school with them. You're in social clubs with them. You connect with them through community events and community activities. Your children are in the same class at school. These people are going to hear the gospel most likely from you. And so you may think of yourself as a shadow Christian who doesn't really have a big ministry or a large platform, but you do have the opportunity to speak the gospel to people in your circle of influence, and by doing that, help make the gospel the viral movement it was designed to be. Well, shadow Christians experience God's power and share the gospel. Let me give you one more. Shadow Christians are the ministry workforce. Now, every ministry organization has what I call an org chart or an organizational chart. And there are other top box people, like pastors and presidents. They're in those boxes at the top, and everybody knows their name. A lot of times, they're public figures. They do the preaching and the speaking. Uh, they lead the meetings, and their name is on the sign or on the letterhead. They're spotlight leaders. But do you realize that in any ministry organization, while there are one or two or three boxes at the top of the chart, there are dozens, if not hundreds, of boxes cascading down the chart that are full of the names of shadow Christians that no one knows. Perhaps outside the department where they work in the ministry organization, they're not even well known in their own organization. Shadow Christians fill out the org chart. They are the people in the boxes cascading down the chart that make such a remarkable and amazing difference in the advance of God's kingdom. Now, one of the best examples of this in the Bible is Jesus choosing 12. Now, Jesus chose 12 disciples, and of course, they're all named. They're spotlight leaders. But the next level of leaders are all unnamed. 
The Bible says that Jesus then chose 72 more workers, paired them up, gave them instructions, and sent them out. But he never told us their names. They went out and accomplished remarkable things and came back reporting and rejoicing what they had happened. I've often wondered, why couldn't some of those stories be included in the Gospels? Why couldn't some of those stories be told? Why, why couldn't their names make it into the Bible? Because God wants us to understand that while, yes, there's a place for top box leaders, yes, there needs to be an inner circle like Peter, James, and John, and then there needs to be a second layer like the other nine. Yes, those top 12 disciples, they were spotlight leaders that Jesus chose and put in charge and gave, uh, and, and, and gave the responsibility to give direction to the movement. Yes, I get that. But what about the 72 that came after them? The unnamed, anonymous people who filled out the org chart of Kingdom Inc., if you want to think about it that way, and got the work done so well in the Gospels. You know, there are lots of stories today of how this works out, but I just want to tell you two. A number of years ago, uh, a prominent leader came from Houston, Texas, to work with us in the Pacific Northwest. While he had been in Houston, he had been a pastor of a very effective church, and in that role, he had developed a, uh, a, a mentoring relationship with quite a large number of younger pastors. It was that mentoring uh, relationship that first brought him to our attention in the Northwest, and we saw in this person uh, a leader who not only had the capacity to uh, be a pastoral leader, but also the capacity to shape and direct and guide other pastors to greater effectiveness. So we invited him to come and work with us in the Northwest. After about two or three years, he and I were having lunch one day, and he said, after being here three years, I'd like to make an observation about the difference between our work in Texas and our work here in the Northwest. He said, Jeff, the difference is not the quality of the pastors. He said, I worked with pastors in Texas, and I've worked with pastors in the Northwest, and frankly, they're about the same. Their spiritual commitments are about the same. Their leadership gifts are about the same. Uh, their commitment to their ministries is about the same. Their passion for, the God, for God's kingdom is about the same. The difference between what I did in, the, in Texas and what I've done in the Northwest is not the pastors. He said, here's the big difference. In Texas, there are large numbers of Christians that are serving in churches and ministry organizations that are supporting and fulfilling the pastor's dreams, visions, and desires that make all the difference. He said, for about 100 years, uh, Baptist universities and uh, Baptist ministries at secular universities have been turning out large numbers of doctors and teachers, coaches and counselors. They've been turning out business leaders, accountants, uh, hospital administrators, and nurses. These schools have been turning out all of these people who have a Christian worldview, a commitment to their church, and a willingness to get in there and do the work required to fulfill the vision that the spotlight leaders or the pastoral leaders have in that context. And then he said, but in the Pacific Northwest, we don't have those people. There's been no strategic investment in building that kind of lay leadership base. There are very few Christian schools, very small collegiate ministries, and those that are here have only been founded in recent years. And, they and in Texas, they have a 100-year head start 
on producing these kind of people. When my friend told me that over lunch that day, it was like uh, a eureka moment for me. It, it was like the lights came on and I realized what he was saying was so powerfully true. The leaders in the two contexts were about the same, but the followers, the unseen army of silent, shadow, anonymous, unnamed Christians was so much larger in Texas than in the Northwest that it made a qualitative and a quantitative difference in the effectiveness of the churches and ministry organizations in that part of the world. Listen, Peter, James, and John are important. The other nine disciples, yeah, they were named also in important roles on the team. But the 72 that were selected next and the hundreds, if not thousands, that they impacted that are not even named in the Bible, that's where the army came from. That's where the movement was sustained. That's where, after the resurrection, the thousands of people started going out and telling about Jesus almost immediately because of what had happened from those 72 and all that had happened by the shadow Christian movement that they were a part of. Listen, shadow Christians fill out the org chart. Shadow Christians get the work done. Shadow Christians are the sustaining, motivating uh, workforce that accomplishes what needs to be done in a church or ministry organization. Look, you're a shadow leader. You can get up next Sunday and say, we're going to have the greatest vacation Bible school ever next summer. But unless a lot of people band together, none of whom will ever get their name in a report or a notebook or up in lights or even on a website, unless a whole lot of people band together and make that vacation Bible school happen, it doesn't matter how much vision you cast, without the shadow Christians to get the work done, nothing meaningful will be accomplished. And I thank God for shadow Christians who have a strong sense of their place, their purpose, even a sense of calling to what they do. Here's another story for you. A number of years ago, when I was uh, working in the Pacific Northwest, we had a church that had a remarkable youth ministry. And one of the reasons it had such a remarkable youth ministry was because its children's ministry was so dynamic. This church had a very intentional process for moving children up through grades one through six and then getting them to the sixth grade and launching them very intentionally into their teenage years and into the youth or student ministry of the church. Wish I could tell you the whole story about that because it's a fascinating model of how to move people along incrementally and then capstone that development and then springboard them forward into youth ministry and then how to structure a youth ministry to receive them, sustain them, and put them on a path toward graduation and toward moving toward Christian leadership as young adults. It was a remarkable church and a remarkable season of ministry. Two of the most important people in that process were two women who led the sixth grade ministry of the church. I had an opportunity to talk with him one day in a casual conversation, and I said, how long have you two worked together in sixth grade ministry? They smiled and said, oh, it's been more than 10 years, about 12, maybe 13 even, that we've been working together. And I said, why, why have you stayed with it for so long? And they looked at each other, and one of them said, well, because that's our ministry. That's what we do. That's the passion God gave us and the, and the opportunity God presented to us and, the, and, the, and the, the vision that we have for accomplishing it is from God and, and we just can't imagine doing anything else. 
And I reflected back on the first words that she said. That, that's our ministry. That's what we do. You know, shadow Christians are like that. They say, I'm an usher. I'm a deacon. I'm a teacher. I'm a mentor. I'm a helper. They say, I clean the church. I prepare for the Lord's Supper. I fill the baptistry. They say, I deliver the food baskets. That's what I do. That's my ministry. You can count on me. I don't need any notoriety. I don't need any recognition. I don't need anybody to know what I've done. I don't need to be in charge of anything. I don't need to be elected to any, by anybody. I just want to serve. That's my ministry. That's what God has called me to do. That's what God wants me to do. And that's where I want to give my life. It's humbling to be a spotlight leader and to know that today at Gateway Seminary, there will be 150 employees that will come to work, most of whom will never get any public recognition. They'll, they'll never speak in a conference. A few faculty might write a book, but most of them won't write books. They're never going to be known by, by anyone really outside the seminary community. But they come to work every day committed to fulfilling our mission and helping to accomplish the vision I've laid out for us as a school. I thank God for shadow Christians who are the ministry workforce, who share the gospel, and who experience God's power. Without them, spotlight leaders are just spouting off ideas and big dreams. But with them, we are a ministry movement that can accomplish so much in God's kingdom. So today, if you're a spotlight leader, I'm grateful for you. But if you're a shadow Christian, I'm equally grateful for you. And I hope this podcast has encouraged you. And if you're a spotlight leader, I hope this podcast has motivated you to be more encouraging of shadow Christians all around you and more appreciative of the work they do and the contribution they make. Think about it. Put it into practice as we lead on.